the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I was joined in studio by economist Jim Power and John McGrain of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce to tease out their views on whether the UK's hung parliament might deliver a softer Brexit. You'll also hear what they think a softer border between North and South might actually look like. In the second half of the show, Joe Brennan will take us through the price range for AIB's IPO. And you'll hear from Larry Broderick of the Financial Services Union, who tells me why he believes AIB should establish a profit-sharing scheme for staff at the bank in recognition of their contribution to getting it back on its feet. Don't forget you can download this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. But we'll begin with the UK election. The hung parliament has resulted in Theresa May relying on the support of the DUP in Northern Ireland. And with no majority in Westminster, hopes of a softer Brexit have emerged. Here to tease out that issue is economist Jim Power and John McGrain of the British Irish Chamber of Commerce. Jim Power, there's been lots of talk post the UK election results that uh, the Theresa May government, such as it'll be uh, in the new parliament, will soften its stance on Brexit. What's your view? Well, I, I suppose when Theresa May called the election in April, uh, the opinion polls at that stage would have translated into possibly a 100-seat majority for her. Landslide. And, yeah, landslide. And we were trying to interpret at that stage what that would mean. And there were two interpretations. One is that it would give her a very strong hand to take a very bulgy approach with uh, Brussels. In other words, push for the sort of hard Brexit that she outlined in her January speech. And the other interpretation was that with that sort of a majority, she would then be able to make the compromises necessary to negotiate a soft Brexit. And I suppose uh, I tended to lean towards the former rather than the latter. You know, I felt that she would use it to push the hard Brexit agenda. Um, From her perspective, the election was an absolute disaster. Um, You know, we we don't know when she'll be sitting down to start the negotiation process with Brussels. We don't know who will be with her. Is it the DUP, Mm. presumably? Well, it's supposed to be on June 19th. It's meant to be starting on June 19th, yeah. And um, And Michelle Barnier on the the EU side has said, let's crack on. The the clock is running. Uh, There's no doubt about that. You know, it's it's, it's two years from... um, Mm. At the no, end they of March. can have a one-year extension. They can have, a, but every EU member country will have to agree to that extension. Mm. So it depends on how the negotiations go. But I, I suppose post-election, um, I would definitely interpret the election result as somewhat of a rejection of the hard Brexit thesis. Not total, some. You know, if you look at where Labour made mm. some of their gains, that that is one interpretation. Now, mind um, you, they had their best electoral performance in terms of the number of votes they gathered, the percentage of votes that they gathered. And it was a good turnout. Uh, it was the best in 30 years. The best but, since uh, I know, yes, but, but a lot of hard Brexiteers actually did poorly. You know, some did well, but a lot of them did poorly. UKIP. And yeah, well, UKIP obviously got absolutely wiped out, but even on the Tory side. But anyway, I mean, it, it's it's hard. It is really difficult to know. We thought the election would bring us some certainty and clarity. Mm. Um, it it hasn't really. But I, I suspect, you know, the wind is changing towards um, a softer Brexit. Um, I wouldn't totally rule out the possibility of another referendum, depending on how politics evolves over the next couple of years. So I think from an Irish perspective, we're actually in a slightly better place today, possibly, yeah. uh, than we were two weeks ago. But and, time will tell. It's still and the irony is uncertain. that she's going to require the support of the DUP, who have 10 MPs uh, in the new Westminster Parliament. And the DUP, very much on the Brexit side, very much on the Brexit debate in the referendum last year. And yet now that they're supporting the 
Tory administration were told that they want a soft Brexit. Well, I, I think it, it became quite obvious after the Brexit vote last June that the DUP stance uh, was deemed by themselves to have been a bit of a mistake. And I thought their stance had softened somewhat since then. So I think the DUP obviously will now try to um, push uh, a soft border between North and South. Um, you know, that, that will be their obvious priority. But if you look at the other elements of the support, Theresa May is going to have to depend on the 13 Scottish Conservatives, for example. Uh, they would very much be soft Brexit types. Um, her Philip Hammond, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, is a soft Brexit type. So there's a lot of people influential in the political scene at the moment that definitely wouldn't be amenable to um, a hard Brexit. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, I wish I knew the answer. We don't know the answer. Um, it's still mm. all up in the air. Mm. Uh, but from Theresa May's perspective, going into the negotiations with Brussels, she is in a very, very powerless situation. I mean, when the negotiations started, um, all of the cards were going to be stacked in Brussels' favour anyway, uh, given the nature of the thing. But post-election, I think she's in a much weaker position. And then if you look at Macron last weekend, got a very strong performance in the legislative elections. Um, so he is now in a very, very strong position to push his passion, which mm. is to maintain and the strength and solidity of the European Union. So he won't be of a mind to compromise with and Theresa Merkel May. Merkel is looking well placed uh, for the German elections later she, this she year. She is indeed. On September 24th, um, it's highly likely Merkel will be back in power. And likewise, she won't be of a mind to um, give too many concessions to Britain that would ultimately weaken the whole EU edifice. Yeah. So strange times. John McGrain, you're the head of the British-Irish Chamber of Commerce. It was uh, set up in 2011, I think, coincided with the visit here of uh, Queen Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. You're speaking to people on both sides of the Irish mm-hmm. Sea, on uh, various sides of the business community and, and so forth. What are you hearing about soft or hard Brexit or what the likelihood is going forward, given the election results last week? Yeah, so, I mean, Jim nailed it. Uh, it's about what we don't know, because we don't know. And, and we don't know all that much more since last Thursday than we knew before. I was in uh, Yorkshire through the election campaign, through the, the election count last week. And, you know, Yorkshire businesses, and they're pretty canny people, they didn't want to be part of the EU the day before and they didn't want to be part of the EU the day after. And they were no clearer on what exactly was the escape route out of it, but they didn't want to be in the EU. And there is a... Uh, a slight tendency in in the ensuing days that we in Ireland kind of uh, breathe a collective sigh of relief and say, well, that's the worst of that out of the way and it's going to be a soft Brexit now. The reality is we just don't know because there wasn't actually any debate inside the UK during the election campaign about Brexit at all. Mrs May called the election seven weeks earlier, um, you know, pulled the rug from under everybody else. It looked like a genius move and uh, proceeded not to talk about Brexit at all, even though she said that the, what she was looking for was a, a mandate to, to get Britain the exit that, that they wanted. She went on to do one of the craziest political manoeuvres ever in the middle of an election campaign, and that's to take money off old people, pure conservative heartland stuff, and then was you know uh, uh, obscenely set back by two very serious terrorist incidents, which then brought her own reputation on, on justice and, and, and security in, into play. So we ended up not getting the conversation on Brexit at all. And the result is that... While while it ain't going to get any harder than it was, we get that, it couldn't have been, um, uh, we're, we're just not sure how soft it is. And, and from, from Ireland's interest point of view, you know, any Brexit, soft, no matter how soft, is worse than the status quo. There would be some industry, some movement of people, some movement of goods or services that's disrupted 
to a greater degree than has been the case before. And, and that so is which, serious Which industries are you particularly concerned about? Well, look, I mean, everybody gets it about, you know, mushroom farming hasn't exactly felt good about anything since the 23rd of June last year because it's pure commodity. There's no distinctiveness. It's very hard to make a mushroom anything but a mushroom. Uh, they're working on a 6% margin and they lost 17% on the currency slump within 48 hours. So very sadly, six of them went out of business within three weeks. Um, and indeed, mushroom farmers have again, once again been talking about sterling weakness. The, the issue is, and, and you, know, you can map across the rest of the indigenous Irish food and agribusiness sector, is very exposed because you can't move a pig farm and you can't move the factory at the bottom of a pig farm, whereas you can move widget making and certain services and many other things. Tourism is also quite exposed, by the way. And the thing that we observe now is that while all the talk is about hard and soft, the real issue is that inside the UK, two things that will determine the outcome aren't being talked about at all. Immigration, no conversation whatsoever, and the economy. This is about the economy, stupid. Inside the UK today, Mrs. May already knew what was coming down the track just this week, which is that consumer inflation is nudging 3%. That doesn't sound too much, but remember, we're all living in a 1% inflation environment. So that's getting fizzy. And the reason behind that is that manufacturing price inflation is going up by 16%. That was hedged. UK companies, unlike Irish companies, hedge. 75% of the hedging in place in UK business on the 24th of June last year was still in place on the 31st of January this year. They buy six and 12 month hedges. Nine months later, they're burning off. That manufacturing price increase is becoming violent and will get passed on to consumers within months. And that's what will hurt the pound in people's pocket. That alone might be the thing that might evolve consumer sentiment. But already people in Yorkshire are saying that's the EU being very unkind to us. So this is a very complex matter as it started from um, where, we're past, where it won't get worse than we were fearing but we have a lot of work to do to make well, sure that it lands better, in a yeah. decent place. Now, the DUP are suggesting that as part of the negotiations to support the Tories, they're going to insist effectively on a soft border. I'm just wondering what a soft border would look like. In your eyes, how would it work? So, um, if I was a Northern Ireland farmer, one third of whose milk um, is being exported into the south of Ireland across the border every day. It's, it's a third of Northern Ireland milk to be processed in the south. It's 10% of the, of the south of Ireland's milk supply. So it's significant to us both. The, the idea of, a, of an open border for that trade is very, very appropriate because the WTO tariff on dairy in that case would be 52%, 52% down, 52% back for the cheese mm. or infant milk powder that's going so back. That's so like you're out of business. And ironically, the new Lackpatrick facility, world-class production facility in Northern Ireland to process that same milk uh, would make milk powder to feed Chinese babies but catch 22 they can't sell it in China because Northern Ireland's right to sell in China is a function of its EU membership not, not otherwise it would be cheaper to walk Daisy across the border milk her by hand and, and send her back with a pat on the back for tea time it doesn't work well you might get stopped this is the whole point so what does a soft border look like the flip side is if you're an Irish farmer an Irish beef farmer and the UK gets a hard or hardish Brexit leaving you know, tough terms for trade in, in agriculture, but softened by a reasonably open border. Irish farmers don't exactly want Brazilian beef pouring in from New York. Well, neither do the French. Neither do the French. So this is complicated. And 
the need is to move on from the rhetoric and indeed the goodwill towards the island of Ireland. A very important thing. Both the EU and the UK have said we get it that there's something important about Ireland that has to be taken care of. But the putting of the meat on that bone is very important. As Timmerman said, it'll take all the create creativity of the Irish people to come up with the ways and means by which we can help you with practical solutions. And we need to come up with those solutions, not diplomats or the Europeans or anybody else. That's why business needs to come together, working with our diplomats and say, here's how we can get stuff working cross-border, how we can keep people flowing, services trading, etc., etc. Yeah, Jim Power, are you confident that we will uh, come up with those solutions ourselves? No, I, I, I couldn't figure from the beginning how you could actually achieve a soft border situation because... Uh, that border is basically the land border between borders the EU. Borders, borders, borders. Uh, exactly, and the UK is the only land border. So borders, borders, border. Absolutely. Um, so I wouldn't be confident at all that we we will manage to engineer something like that if, if Brexit does happen. Um, very, very hard to see it. And um, as John's pointed out, you know, for certain industries, it's a massive problem. He mentioned the Chinese market for milk, likewise, milk powder, likewise Africa, which is becoming an increasingly important market. Um, I was talking to a food producer a couple of weeks ago who was on the brink of um, expanding his market into Scotland. And then when the Brexit vote happened, off the table. So it is already having a serious disruptive impact on businesses like the food sector. So, um, and, and as John said, regardless of whether it's a soft Brexit or a hard Brexit, it is going to make the situation worse than it was, than it is at the moment. There's no doubt about that. Mm. So, you know, the, the hope would be um, that and maybe this is a forlorn hope because I, I believed before the UK election that a second referendum was an impossibility. Um, I think it's slightly less of an impossibility at this stage, but it would take business interests in the UK um, to actually push that agenda. And also the fact that consumers are now starting to be hit with imported inflation, that that is another issue. Um, and while, you know, the Bank of England, the UK Treasury were predicting this time last year that the UK economy would get into serious trouble immediately following mm. Um, a Brexit vote. Didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen. But the mistake they made was that they took too short term perspective. It was always going to be a long term impact because, mm. you know, the short term impact of something that hasn't happened um, is always going to be minimal. Um, but it's the longer term issue. And that issue is post the negotiation period. What sort of trading relationship will Britain have mm. with the European Union? That is the big issue. And um, if it's looking harder and harder, well, then I think UK business might just start to change the agenda. And I think the political wins um, are certainly a little bit behind that agenda. But I suppose the worrying thing, as John said, being in Yorkshire um, during the election count and businesses there before and after wanted to be out of the European Union. Now, mind you, it, so, it must be said that a lot of business leaders came out in support of a Remain vote during is. the referendum mm. campaign and it had no impact. That's correct, ab ab absolutely. In fact, there was a backlash against them for doing but, but, it. But if it starts to hit jobs, if it starts to hit business investment intentions in the UK, well, perhaps that mm. changes the popular discourse a little bit. But I also think that... Uh, the popular view in England today is very different than it was post-Brexit. I mean, people like Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage, Michael Gove were very quickly shown up for what they were uh, the morning after the referendum. You know, so maybe, maybe... Mm, John McGrain, um, you're shaking your head. You're not so sure. I, I wouldn't put money on that, OK? It's a, it's a, it's a four-long... James' analysis is right, but... Um, 
I mean, this is a political problem. It's not a people problem. It's that, you know, yeah. they, like so many, you know, democratic exercises, it's not what people thought they were voting for. Uh, you know, we, we still meet people who say, you know, uh, we get the rationale, we get the rationale, we get the rationale, but we should just leave. And why do you think it should? Because the euro doesn't work. Well, no, that wasn't the exam question here in the first place. So there's like it, we're ascribing too much to the will of the people on this. The yeah. reality is politics made it and politics will have to get us out. And okay. it's going to take somebody of the unique backflip ability of a Boris Johnson to come out on, on Sky News some morning and in the Irish Times and say, I've, you know, I've looked into my heart, devil era like, and I have read the will of the people and it is for soft Brexit. And that's what we're going to have. Or indeed another referendum. And that's another what we're going to yeah. And he might just get away with that. By the way, how many of your members, let's say percentage wise of mm. your members, how many members do you have? Our members employ two million people. We have okay. the largest number of UK Irish businesses of any of any representative. But, uh, how many companies or associations? Oh, that's or groups in, the, in the several hundreds. Several in hundreds. Terms of okay. individual firms. What Large percentage? Small, not just West, yeah. What percentage of those do you think would actually back Brexit? Oh, we we make no bones about this. We we campaigned for the UK to remain as part of the nations who want to fix and improve the EU from within. So, you know, the people didn't choose that. We respect that. Um, to your point earlier, Kieran, I'm not sure that business did speak out in quite the volume that it uh, it now looks like we should have. Um, you know, and there are parallels for that in, in Lisbon previously in this country when we had to go again and business dialed up second time round. Uh, I think business gets it now in, 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 by, in terms of the largest employers that this has led to an extremely dangerous state of affairs, not just about shareholders' dividends, but about well-being created by jobs the length and breadth mm. of the islands. And, you know, there's no new investment happening inside the UK until this this is clarified. There is research funding draining away from UK universities, which powers up the life sciences industry, etc., etc. It's draining away. And only the most individualised businesses, businesses who don't think they trade externally, are really saying, look, we can wing it here and we'll take our chances. But if you say to them, and who do you sell to? You probably find they sell to somebody who does trade with the EU. So the issue here is about business kind of coming in a second time around here as a, as a united front because it wasn't united before. The Federation of Small Businesses, the largest organisation in the UK, was actually split down the middle as many people were because it's a personal decision even though they form part of the membership of a business organisation. So even yet, people are, are quite unsure about this. But I can, I, like our point on this is very clear. We, we need to aggregate the voice of people who firmly believe that this has to be solved and can come up with the ways and means to help diplomats show it can be solved and to negotiate that in the weeks and months ahead. Um, Jim, let's uh, shift the focus to this side of the Irish Sea. We have a new Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar. Do you welcome his appointment? Uh, Yes, I do indeed. Absolutely. Um, I I felt that um, Enda Kenny's days should have ended after the February 16 general election. Um, I think a little bit like Theresa May last week, that was an absolutely disastrous election for the Taoiseach. And I felt he should have left the stage at that stage. Um, I don't think leadership here has been great over the last couple of years. So I welcome, and and of course, that is um, also a function of new politics and the difficulty in implementing policy and making policy. Uh, But I I would hope Leo will bring strong leadership to the table. Mm. Um, Michael Noonan's going, of course, as Minister for Finance as well. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I I, I think um, Michael Noonan was like the curate's egg, you know, good good in patches. Um, You know, I, I think the one thing he definitely did was... He commanded a lot of respect in international markets. Um, he had to repair our reputation uh, abroad, didn't he, he? He did, he did. There's no doubt about it. And that's one thing Enda Kenny very definitely did as well. And I think their external 
performance was much stronger than their domestic performance. And perhaps here domestically, we're all too close analysing every single thing they do. Uh, but I wasn't impressed over the last couple of years by the performance of Michael Noonan or Enda Kenny. Mm. Um, I'm glad both of them are exiting the stage at this stage. Um, I think Leo, you know, brings vibrancy. He brings youth. Uh, he yeah. brings a very strong economic ideology. So now we're yeah, recording just when Leo, I think he's gone off to the Oris um, to get a seal of office from uh, the president. Uh, so we don't know for sure who the next minister for finance will be. But, you know, Pascal Donoghue very strongly tipped for that role. He's already a minister for public expenditure and reform. Are you in favour of his appointment as minister for uh, finance? 100 percent. Um, I think he's done a, a very, very strong job in deeper and I think he'd make a great minister. And what finance. would you like to see him do um, to make a policy priority of? Well, I, I would like to see uh, the whole balance between public spending and taxation ad- addressed eventually. I mean, we heard a lot of talk during the run up to the February 16 general election about the squeeze middle. That issue has not been addressed. You know, there's a segment of the working population out there that is still very, very strained financially. Well, Leo Varadkar seemed to be talking about that group, that cohort. Yes, he did indeed. The, Fine Gael election yes. campaign, the leadership election campaign. He, he, he did indeed, get up absolutely. In but it's going to be very difficult to actually do anything about that because uh, we have strong pressures building, as you know, on the public mm-hmm. sector pay side. Uh, there's very strong demand out there for more spending on public services. So balancing those two objectives against the objective of giving some uh, relief to the so-called squeeze middle, I think is going to be a difficult balancing act. And to achieve any sort of success, strong leadership is required. So I think whatever chance we have now uh, with somebody like Leo Varadkar at the helm, you know, it, it's a possibility. I hope hap- I hope it happens. John McGrain, what would you like to see from the next Minister of Finance? Well, look, politics and politicians get a bad rap, Karen. The country isn't in the worst possible state. In fact, unlike the old yarn about I wouldn't start from here, we would start from here. We're, we're in a good place to face some very heavy challenges. A lot of debt. And, and with significant opportunity ahead. A lot of debt, but actually we're paying that down faster than anybody else right now. We're the best growing perf- economy and community. It's about jobs. Michael Noonan was sounding the warning bells in the last couple of weeks about debt because Leo Varadkar was talking about loosening the purse strings. To do well abroad, which is where we have to do well abroad, we have to do well at home. We have to mind ourselves at home. We have to steer a steady course. We have to not bet the shop on anything in particular. And the most important thing we have to do right now in an in a, in a time of unprecedented challenge and opportunity is to work better together. We actually have the ingredients for that. We have the two mainstream parties actually positioned to be working together and we have the so-called social partners in a pretty good state around those and I would argue the business community and the civic society side of that as well all ready to get a piece of work done here that makes sense for the future. This is our Whitaker moment. 60 years ago TK Whitaker had less resources and less certainty than we have today and he dreamed big with Sean Lamas and the people of the time. We need to think like that now and do big appropriate things for the future like invest in education fund education would be a useful thing we have the Cassells report sitting on another dusty shelf we need to get on with that stuff we need to roll out broadband faster we need to build houses faster reduce VAT for two years and anybody who hasn't used a site by then back up to the higher VAT level we did it in tourism we earned more money not less we know how to do this we just need to get on with it now under the new regime a lot of that is infrastructure spending of course Jim you want to get in here I I would argue that um, if Leo Varadkar wants the template for what needs to be done he should get the most recent cost of doing business survey from the National Competitiveness Council 
where it's highlighted very, very clearly all of the issues that need to be addressed uh, to improve the competitiveness of the Irish economy, to create employment and to make us all better off. Um, but the, the, Go on, give us two the, or three to recommend. I don't uh, have it here in front of me. The, give us two the, or three the, the, the problem, of course, is that the National Competitiveness Council has been saying that for 15 years and has been consistently ignored. But there's, there's, they go through every element of the whole cost of doing business environment. Uh, for example, they're highlighting clearly uh, the impact that commercial property prices have on competitiveness and indeed residential housing. So that they are suggesting, for example, uh, the vacant site levy should be implemented immediately. Uh, they're suggesting that a commercial property price register should be set up to clearly understand uh, what's happening on the commercial property side. Uh, they talk about um, looking at the, the reasons why um, large urban office development isn't happening. You know, Galway, for example, is an example where there's a scarcity of of office development. And, uh, and one of the reasons for that is because of traffic congestion. So it's all about infrastructure. So there's a lot of good stuff. They, they focus in on broadband. They focus in mm. on the wage situation and stress the need to make sure uh, that productivity growth And yet Michael Stanley, growth. the head of Cairn Homes, the listed property yes. company, and it has over 12,000, uh, a land bank of over 12,000 uh, residential sites. He says that there's enough office space in Dublin being built to accommodate 600,000 people, where are they going to live? Uh, that's the problem, a- absolutely. And a key part of the National Competitive Council is focused on the residential side as well. And, um, you know, they, they talk about expediting the planning. They talk about the vacant site yeah. levy to free up residential sites as well. But the other issue there, of course, is infrastructure. You know, you can build the houses to accommodate the people who are going to work in all the new offices that might be delivered. But then traffic congestion is the other issue, how you cope with that. So investment in public infrastructure um, is absolutely vital. So yeah, that, we that, need a distributed sort of strategy on this. It can't yeah. be all about Dublin and no. Cork. Uh, we, we had a response from a woman in a very interesting discussion recently who said that's all very well for people in Dublin to say this stuff. But, you know, she said, I'm from the Rust Belt of Ireland. And I said, where's that? And she named a town that we would all know not very far from Dublin. And she said every second shop in this town is a pound shop and every other shop is about to close. Mm-hmm. And that was a once thriving town. And we haven't had a conversation. No, to be fair to the good people of a very fine town. But like she had an opinion that's rock solid (laughs) that said, you know, like you need to understand it's not all about the major urban centres. And not least if Brexit does challenge agriculture, agriculture powers up the business communities and the civic communities of many a town around the provinces. And, And indeed, agriculture and tourism, and they're both the most exposed to any degree of Brexit. So we've got to watch out to make sure we're taking care of the, the whole country as well as the large urban areas. Okay, we leave there. Jim Power and John McGrain, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, I'll be chatting to Joe Brennan of the Irish Times and Larry Broderick of the Financial Services Union about the latest on AIB's IPO. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information sourced for Irish Life, June 2015. Now, welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Don't forget you can download this podcast for free on iTunes. And it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. I'm joined in studio now by Joe Brennan, markets correspondent of the Irish Times, and by phone by Larry Broderick, head of the Financial Services Union, the biggest union in uh, AIB, representing staff in AIB. And Joe, this week we had an update on AIB's IPO with the announcement of the price range by the government 
and also the publication of a very detailed prospectus. Take us through the main points. Last Friday, it looked like, given the, the outcome of the, the UK election, there was fears that this could lead to a kind of a, a volatility in the market and a bit of delay in terms of the, the pricing. Now, the markets kind of pretty much held up. The reaction in terms of markets was pretty much localised in terms of the sterling and bank shares, uh, both in the UK, in Ireland and across Europe, held up relatively well. So the government was able to proceed because it is the uh, the selling shareholder at this stage. Yeah, it's important to make that distinction. It's the state that's actually running this IPO process. Exactly. So it, well, two things. So the state is running the IPO. So the state is the selling shareholder. So the state came out on Monday evening with its uh, price range at what it, which expects the, 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 the shares that it is selling up to 28.8% stake that it is selling in. The range they've come out, it's a pretty broad range. It goes from 390 to 490 per share. First of all, the, the upper end, it would put a valuation on the bank of uh, 13.3 billion, which is pretty much in line with what you would call book value, which is the, the, the equity value of the assets on the balance sheet as of the end of, of March. Now, AIB, because it is a bank, AIB issues the prospectus. And it's a bit of a beast. It's uh, um, well over 650 pages long. It would cover all kinds of things, including risks, up-to-date figures, um, historic figures, and and all kinds of detail. Mm. Um, So in the round, what is AIB saying about its future prospects in this prospectus? Yeah, I I suppose looking at – when you look at prospectuses, it is mainly uh, the user to highlight the risks that face the company so that prospective investors – would be attuned to those. Uh, the last thing they want to do is actually sell mm. something uh, and they'd be... So what are we talking about? Brexit, non-performing loans? Yeah. So for uh, just kind of in, in loose categories, uh, restructuring, while AIB has made great headway in the last uh, number of years, restructuring uh, non-performing loans from uh, 29 billion euros worth of non-performing loans, which is basically one in every three loans that were out uh, back in 2013. That's down to 8.6 mm. uh, billion. That sounds great now. That progress sounds great. But the 8.6 relative to the size of AIB is still much higher than uh, other banks would have on but their books the point. across Europe. Yeah. Much, much higher. Yeah, but this is the point. AIB is making the point that while it's made good headway in the last number of years, the progress has slowed down and slowed down significantly. And the regulators are on its case as well. You have regulators on the case of all banks, including AIB. And AIB itself has come out in the last few weeks and it has set a target for itself of reducing most of the remaining uh, 8.6 billion of, of, of non-performing loans. So that puts it up to, to AIB itself. AIB's non-performing loans are about 13% of what remains at this stage. Mm. And it's very high if you compare... The EU average is about 5% maybe? Around 5 a little over 5% is the EU average. And that's dragged up, of course, by the fact that Ireland and about five different countries are dragging up the, 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 overall, the overall figure. So that is one of the, the, the concerns that they do highlight. While they're making progress, they highlight that the, the rate mm. of progression is low down. The last few years, they managed to release over 1 billion of provisions against these loans as they restructured these loans at pace and they found that they could... Uh, the, the losses they, weren't as big as they thought. Exactly. They'd, they'd overprovided for these loans. Now, that has slowed down. In the first quarter of this year, they only were able to release 7 million such provisions. And you compare that to the same period last year, talking about 112. Brexit, another thing. AIB is the most exposed Irish bank to the Irish economy. So when you're going out to sell it, the Irish economy is doing relatively well at the moment. It is your pure, pure play. 
by uh, comparison, Bank of Ireland is forty percent of its loan book is 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 in the UK, so it's pretty much directly exposed to Brexit. But any out any fallout, and it does warn there's any fallout from the UK economy from Brexit has a knock because the Irish economy so exposed exactly. To the so UK. You're, you're exposed. It is exposed by 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 virtue of the fact that it is the main lender to SMEs in Ireland. It also is the, the main mortgage lender in Ireland as well. UK election, obviously, uh, they had mm. to kind of tweak the the perspectives in the last number of days to highlight the. Uh, what they call the political instability brought on mm. by the, the, the hung parliament. A few other things. Interest rates are at our rec- uh, record lows at the moment. Official interest rates are at record lows at the moment. Um, and AIB is some of the cheapest variable rates in the market at present. Out there. So there is a fear, and they would highlight that, that customer affordability could be impacted as interest rates move, move okay. higher. Any mention of staff or cost income ratios or restructuring? They brought down their cost income ratio to slightly over 50%, and I think they mm. target around 50%. And they've taken um, out something like 380 million. I think, yeah, yeah 350, since 12 and they cut thousands of staff. Back in 2012, 2013, they announced a restructuring program of two and a half thousand people. Now, since then, um, they've, they, they haven't what they call natural attrition. A number of people who would have left uh, normally, um, they haven't replaced a lot of those. Yeah, okay. This is a good point to bring you in, uh, Larry Broderick, because you've been making some points to politicians and to the bank itself as well about what should happen for staff post an IPO. Because obviously, very positive for the bank that it's going to be moving into partial private ownership. It's back in profit. It paid a dividend to the state. There are a lot of good things happening to the bank over the last few years. It's it's moving towards this normalised uh, state that we all talk about. But you, you fear that maybe staff are being left behind a little. Well, I don't think staff are being factored into the equation. I think from the union's point of view, what we've argued is that now that the focus is on the sale, we should copper fasten with the bank and the existing management team and the new investors that the strategy for the future builds on how the bank got to where it got to through staff support. And that is a very strong commitment on what the future of the retail network looks like. AIB have committed to retain branches, to change the shape of branches, but to engage with us about a new model. But they're talking about, like Bank of Ireland, a community model. And that needs to be built on. Secondly, the issue of pay remains outstanding. Our members have had major sacrifices. The bank is back now in, in a billion profit and there will be proceeds that the government will get directly out of this sale. So we should address the issue about pay for the future. In terms well, you have of agreed a pay structures. deal with them, haven't you? Yeah, but what, we, what we're lacking uh, is in relation to our career structure that we have in the likes of the other banks, whereby there's a clear vision for people when they join, how they get to the top of the scale. What we've been doing over the last number of years is doing individual pay deals on a, on a year-by-year basis. And I think the staff that have remained loyal need to have a look at a structure on pay for the future that shows where they are in the organisation. And then the third thing is about the whole digitalisation, how that's going to be managed. And we have agreements with the bank around job security, that if there is going to be further reductions, it's done on a voluntary basis, but there'll be no compulsory redundancies. So they're very close to the, the staff's uh, kind of heart at the moment. And to some extent, with the focus on the, the sale, it's been difficult to actually engage with the senior management to get those commitments into the future. And we expect to have those engagements now over the next couple of weeks. Just tell us where you are uh, in terms of the pay deal that, that was negotiated with bank. Well, what we've done in AIB, we've done a two-year deal for this year and next year, averaging about 2.5% for this year and 2.5% for next year. Uh, that copper fastens pay in the context mm. of... That uh, sounds pretty good, you know, in, in, in a, uh, yeah, an environment right, where inflation is very low. I mean, we've done deals right across the industry. So it's there and we've set the norm that has as a norm right across the industry. So I think we're, we're, AIB is, is, is dealing with that. I suppose the key issue for AIB staff is 
what's the salary structure before we used to have an incremental structure where every year people would know how they progress up a scale. We need to know what the job jobs are changing. So what is the relevance of those jobs and what's the relevance of the scales in relation to this? The bank has had this on the agenda now for three or four years, hasn't got around to dealing with it. And we're saying very clearly now, no, you have to get around to deal with it. In the interest of staff that are remaining, right. a lot of staff are looking at their careers and it's important that it be factored into the considerations, particularly as the bank is going into such a, a reasonable place from its perspective. And what about bonuses and incentives? Where do you stand on that? Is this the right time to reintroduce those, particularly for senior management? No, I mean, we were never a fan of bonuses or incentives. Indeed, we believe they had played a contributing part to the downfall of the industry. The one area that we would be interested in in developing is the whole question of maybe profit share, or how is the proceeds into the future, a future sale of... of, of uh, of, of assets, how can that be distributed? And certainly our, our perspective has been very clear in relation to that. If staff can be bought into a model that can actually have provide better service, improved performance, improved uh, productivity all around, well, staff should share in that, but it should not be focused on senior management. And uh, we'd have a very strong view against that. And what percentage of a profit share would be, would be fair? Well, again, our, 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 our arrangements in the past uh, looked at arrangements from anything between uh, zero to zero to five percent. Zero to five percent of profits. Yeah. You know, in other words, if the organisation made no profit, there would be no increase. If the organisation made a profit of X, they'd be looking at trying to distribute five percent of that through a profit share arrangement. And I, I presume you've presented this proposal to management or to government. No, because to be honest with you, uh, we ha- we haven't had the opportunity down and have those discussions you asked me what would the view would be certainly i think there's a lot of noise about bonuses and bonuses for senior executives in the industry and we're very much against that but what we have said if there is going to be something in terms of organizations like AIB being profitable it should be more focused on that but that's maybe something we'll talk to them about when we sit down and, and, and deal with how we address pay which is our priority anyway Okay, Joe, just on the long-term incentives, uh, a lot of speculation around the executives that, okay, it's not going to happen as part of the IPO, but maybe post-IPO, shareholder alignment and all that kind of stuff, that there might be some arrangements agreed with the key executives. Yeah, if you recall, um, a few years ago, AIB made the early running in terms of trying to uh, get government on board. Mm, That was during David Duffy's time as CEO. And and, and Hodgkinson's time as as, as chairman. chairman, yeah. Um, so they made an early running even before Bank of Ireland, even though Bank of Ireland remained outside of state control. Um, they were pushed back immediately by the, by the department. Um, and even in the prospectus, it does highlight the, the, the fact that there is no long-term incentive plan in place uh, for, 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 for and no sign of one either for, for or bonuses uh, for, for senior management. They do highlight that um, there could be issues with that, uh, including the fact that um, investors like to see some sort of alignment or skin in the game of of senior management, mm. mind you, it's still going to be seventy five percent state owned, uh, pretty much. Yeah, I mean, you can you can you can design an, an LTIP or a long term incentive plan any way you want, and you can design it in a way that you know it is structured mm. that uh, as 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 the government gets back its shares and certain targets are set there, that you can actually have a, a, an incentive program built in around that. So that there, there is that flexibility if if they want to, but there is no absolutely no political appetite uh, to allow for incentive plans, and I imagine. Uh, Bank of Ireland would have to be the first of the banks to make a move in the, on, on that front and others would follow suit and again there is no immediate sight, uh, line of sight of that. Um, Larry can I just ask you just on the profit share issue you, we're, we're speaking in the context of AIB but obviously other banks in the Irish market now are back in profit as well 
Uh, are you going to be pushing perhaps for a profit share at those banks as well, let's say Bank of Ireland? Yeah, well, I mean, I think as we look forward, as banks start consolidating their position and as performance starts to increase and as profitability increases, we believe that, you know, rather than the idea of loose incentives or focus incentives at the very top of the organisation, what you need to do is have everybody's stakeholders built into a vision what the future direction of the organisation is. And in the context of that, if the organisation makes profit, it's not unreasonable to see how that should be distributed and to build in a profit share arrangement. In in the early 2000s, there was those kind of arrangements in place. Unfortunately, uh, the view was taken by a lot of the senior management. This wasn't the only useful tool to maximise the, the return of, of the organisation. And it moved towards profit share being kind of less important and a greater focus on individual senior executive bonus schemes and even to some extent to try to develop bonus schemes at the lower level, all of which were divisive. So we feel if the organisations generally in the industry is about looking uh, forward-looking and taking on board the experience of the past, a profit-share arrangement, I think, has win-win for everybody, provided that the, kind of the goals that are set in relation to that focus not just on return on equity and profit- profitability itself, but also on, on delivering service to customers, which are important as well. No. I'm just wondering, um, uh, profit share idea, would that be impacted by, remember back in 2010, um, uh, when the government was about to seize AIB, that has slapped a, a 90% tax on potential bonuses. Do you think that would cover, that would that would impact any um, gain from a profit share for, for, for um, uh, staff? Not really, Joe, because that was specifically focused on bonuses. And what happened there, as you remember, there was a famous case, nothing to do with profit share, but to do with capital markets, where a number of individuals contractually went to the High Court and won their case in relation to the right to have a contractual bonus. And in response to that, the government said, well, that may very well be your view, but our view is in any state-owned organisation where bonuses apply, 90% of it will be taxed. And that, that still remains the situation today. Uh, and I think the, the, the government are very clear from what I got, and all political parties are very clear that the idea of bonus arrangements uh, is divisive. I think that is very distinctive from profit share. There is very clear revenue rules around how profit share can be provided. The structures in place to deal with it, it's right across the board. And it's down to the criteria in relation to, to how that profit is generated. Uh, now, there'll have to be far more transparency because in the past, those kind of arrangements were really managed by a subcommittee of the, the remuneration board and most of the banks. And if it is going to happen, it'll have to be more transparent and we'd have to be involved in it. But I think it's an innovative way of looking at how we can align uh, particularly state-owned banks with the needs of the customer to get more profit and try and get staff bought in by giving them some recognition because at the end of the day they make huge sacrifices to deliver the profit. Uh, Joe, finally and quickly, uh, maybe you can just take us through the timeline for the IPO process from here. The announcement on Monday of the price range between 390 and 490 yesterday evening, the investment banks that are involved in it said that they had enough demand uh, from potential investors to cover the book, to cover the maximum, which is um, a 28.8% stake that would be sold by the state. Now they want to see a multiple of that. The success of the, of the IPO will be down to the size the more of demand the, the higher price they can charge yeah. exactly and you also I mean they also be cognizant of the type of investor they want to get in there mm. uh, permanent TSB two years ago it was priced at the top of the range uh, almost at book value for a bank that wasn't profitable at the time and uh, a lot of kind of hedge fund types got involved there as well so you probably don't want to see and, certainly and the share price is, is well off uh, it's the 288 versus 4, 450, 450 yeah, okay. yeah. next Friday they expect it to price so you'll have conditional trading on the 23rd uh, at the time of prices and then you'll have unconditional trading the following 
voting Monday. All right, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to John McGrain, Jim Power, Joe Brennan and Larry Broderick. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com and you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.